Several years ago, I sat down with a young couple in my office for a counseling session. She was a believer in Jesus Christ. She was a Christ follower. He wasn't. In fact, he didn't even believe in God. And her faith was causing some problems in their relationship. And in the course of our discussion, our, our conversation, I, I asked him, I said, you know, so you don't believe in God. You don't believe in the Bible. You don't believe in Jesus. And I said, why not? He says, I don't know. I just don't. And so I began to talk to him about, you know, the, how creation points to a creator and some of those analogies. I began to talk to him about the reliability of the Bible. I began to talk to him about the, the proof of the resurrection. And I said to him, have you ever thought about any of that? And he said, no. He said, but you, you, you have given me something to think about. I said, okay, well, that's good. And I said, but... But even after hearing all of that, you still, you, you don't believe in any of this right now. And, and it's just, you know, I, I said to him, if I'm hearing you right, you are basing your entire eternal destiny on a hunch. And he said, I never thought about it like that. <laughs> now, the sad part of that story is he walked out, he left, he didn't give his life to the Lord and I never saw him again. I have no idea what happened to that guy or that couple. But you know, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I, one of the things I love about the Christian faith is that it is a robust faith. It is a faith that is built on substance, that's built on facts and not feelings or emotions, or some random ideology. There's a lot of that type of thing today. But our faith is built on a firm foundation. Our faith is built on the proclamation of Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 6, when he said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that is a bold statement. That is an absolute statement. You know, we live in this world today that likes to say there's no such thing as absolutes. And Jesus doesn't say, I am one of the ways. He says, I am the way, point blank. There's no other. I am it. But Jesus backed up that proclamation when he died on the cross and then three days later rose again from the dead. And in his resurrection, he was proving that he was exactly who he said he was. And listen, when somebody predicts their own death and predicts that three days later they're going to rise again from the dead and they pull that off, I think that's a person worth following. Because no one else has ever done that. But that's what Jesus did. You know, in reality, we celebrate as believers, we celebrate Easter, the resurrection, all year long. We celebrate the resurrection every single day because the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is our hope. Peter said that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus, it's our very life. It's his resurrection that breathes life into our life. The resurrection, the, the, Jesus Christ rising again from the dead enables us to have the power that we need to live for him. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is talking about the importance of the resurrection and what it means for us as believers now but also in the future now last week pastor jamie opened up our conversation by going through verses 1 through 11 and i want to read over those verses again and make some quick observations for the sake of context so beginning in verse 1 paul writes Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which was which also you received in which you stand. Now he's saying there that the gospel in which we have received, it's, we stand in it. It's our firm foundation by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. 
The gospel is the simple truth that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sins and three days later rose again from the dead to give life to all who believe in his name. And Paul wants the Corinthians and us to know that our faith is not in vain because our faith is based in facts. Notice what he says in verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which also I also received, that Christ died for our sins, and here's the key phrase, according to the scriptures. And he was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Here's fact number one that our faith stands on. What Jesus did in his death and resurrection was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures, And Paul says that our faith is according to God's word. And you know, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that were given that Jesus fulfilled in his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Over 300. Now, that's an astronomical number for one person to fulfill. It's so great that somebody did a study that, that said this, if one person in his life could fulfill just eight of those 300 prophecies, that this is what it would be like. It would be like covering the state of Texas with a hundred trillion silver dollars. Okay, it's a lot of silver dollars. Hundred trillion silver dollars, and we're going to paint one of them red. Okay, right? Texas likes red. And uh, so we're going to paint one of them red. And we're going to get a little kid, and we're going to just let him roam around Texas for several days, and he's going to dig through that big pile and pick out one. The chances of him finding that silver dollar is the same equivalent of one person over that span of time that the Old Testament presents fulfilling just eight of those prophecies. Jesus fulfilled 300 of them. So that's some serious evidence that Paul is giving for. That's one of the things that makes Christianity so unique is the fulfilled prophecies. That's why it it holds up in a court of law. The the second fact, though, are the eyewitnesses. Notice verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. That's another way of saying that they died. And after that, he was seen by James, and then by all of the apostles, and then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So he says, the second fact that that our faith hinges upon is these eyewitness testimonies. We have Peter, we have the 12 apostles, we have 500 people that saw him at one time. And scientists, some have tried to say, oh, they were just hallucinating. Scientists have proven that that's impossible for 500 people to hallucinate all at the same time, okay? It's crazy. He says that he was seen again by the apostles and then last of all by me. That's a lot of eyewitnesses. You know, this isn't two or three guys making up a story. So the second fact of our faith is based on the testimony of these eyewitnesses. And number three, the third fact is it's the power of transformation. Look at what Paul says about himself in verse nine. He says, for I am the least of the apostles whom who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than, than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Paul was an enemy of Jesus Christ. Paul, I mean, to to me, the testimony of Paul is one of the greatest testimonies of transformation. Because here's a guy who was, he hated Jesus, he hated Christians, you know, he he set out to single-handedly just destroy this new movement of these followers of Jesus. He was going into cities and pulling, you know, Christians out of their homes and throwing them in jail. He even had some people killed. I mean, this is how zealous he was. 
But then in Acts chapter 9, on that road to Damascus, he has that encounter with Jesus that changed everything, that he saw the resurrected Lord. And Paul, his testimony is a great testimony. His testimony of transformation is a great fact. It's a great proof of the reality of the resurrection. And you know, I want to encourage you. Not only is Paul's story a great testimony, but so is yours. You have a testimony. You know, some of you in this room, you have been saved out of the pit. Your life was a mess. You, the sin and just the things that you had given yourself over to, you, you, you were in the pit, the miry clay, and Jesus came along and he pulled you out of that and he has set you on a rock and he has forgiven you and he has cleansed you and he has done this work of transformation in you. But others of you, he didn't save you out of the pit, he saved you from it. He got a hold of your life before you went down that road. But we all have a story and I want to encourage you to tell your story. Do not be afraid to tell your story of what Jesus has done for you. You know, my dad, I've shared a lot of times about my dad. And, you know, my dad, he was a heavy drinker. He, he had some anger issues, especially when he drank. But I tell you what, when that guy gave his life to Jesus Christ, there was this radical transformation that took place in his life. It wasn't all at once. It wasn't like, you know, overnight. Um, I mean, I, I've told the stories about how we started going to church and my dad would be the guy in the car in the line. You know, all the cars are waiting to get out of the parking lot and he'd be the guy when he felt like somebody wasn't going. This is right after church, right after worship, right after the sermon. He's blowing on the horn and yelling out the window, come on, go already. And we're all sinking down in the seat, you know. Like, come on, dad. But man, God changed him. And you know, that's why I'm saved. Because I looked at what God was doing in my dad's life, and I thought to myself, this has to be real. Because he's changing. You're doing something. And the way that he, you know, treats my mom and the, the way that he's becoming more patient and all, I mean, it just, it had this radical effect upon my life. Your life, your story can have a, a, an effect on the lives of others. So that's the focus of verses 1 through 11. Now, we're going to pick it up here in verse 12 where Paul, where Paul says this. Now, if Christ is preached... That he has been raised from the dead. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? He's like going, what? What's going on here? If Jesus is risen, how, how can there be some of, of in, in the church, some among you are saying that there's, there's no resurrection. I mean, we die and that's it. That's basically what they were saying. And, and we need to understand that the resurrection is pivotal to our faith and those who said that there is no resurrection they didn't realize this is what this is Paul's point you don't realize what you're doing you're undermining the very thing that that we believe to say that there is no resurrection this is a very poor analogy but I think you'll kind of get the point it, it, it would be like playing football with no football okay so all you have, you know, you turn on TV and all you have is a bunch of guys dressed funny in these, you know, outfits and they're running around, you know, running into one another. And it's like, what's the point? There's no ball. There's no goal. There's no strategy here, you know, in this. If there's no resurrection, that's what Paul's saying. What's the point? We have nothing. If there's no resurrection, it negates everything. So he says in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ isn't risen. If there's no such thing as a resurrection, then Jesus didn't rise. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Hey, if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, there's no point in us being here tonight. We might as well be playing bingo or, you know, we, or out at the bar somewhere. I mean, there's no point. Why, why are we studying this book? Why are we singing these songs? If there's no Savior who's alive. That's his point. Your preaching's in vain. Your faith is in vain. There's no substance to it. It's like your faith, it's like your face is like cotton candy. It's like just something that makes you feel good for a minute, but it has no, um, no lasting impact upon your life. But then he keeps going. Verse 15. Yes, and we are found 
uh, false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. He's saying if there's no resurrection, all those eyewitnesses, they're just liars. That's what he's saying. He continues verse 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Not only, if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, not only is your faith empty, you're still in your sins. There's no forgiveness. You are still guilty. You are still doomed. You are still damned. He continues, verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He's saying, look, if there's no resurrection, if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, then those who have died, they're just gone. You're never going to see them again. So there's no hope. There's no joy, there's only sorrow because they're just gone and it's done. And then he says in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. To be pitied. We're just to be pitied like, oh, those poor foolish Christians. Oh, they just think that, you know, they believe in something that's real. In fact, he even says this in the King James Version. It says that we are the most miserable. Have you ever met somebody that was kind of holding on, always talking about some pipe dream? But then in reality, you know, it's like when they, when they kind of come to their senses or when you kind of get them to that place where they can, you know, just be reality, they realize that their pipe dream is, is just never, ever going to happen. And you ever see how their, their attitude just changes like they're miserable and they're just grumpy because they realize they're putting everything, all their stuff. That's what he's saying. It's like, hey, it, we're just miserable because in reality, we know we're believing in something that isn't true. So then he says this. He says, if there's no resurrection, then we're in really, really bad shape. But then he says this in verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead. That's the reality. What we believe isn't a fairy tale. Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And again, when he says fallen asleep, that, that means those who have died. And so here Paul begins to deal with the impact of the resurrection. And he's going to give us three aspects. He's going to talk about the impact of the resurrection on our Redeemer, Jesus. The impact on the redeemed, us. And then the impact on the restoration of all things. So first of all, he's going to, he says uh, concerning our Redeemer. And, and here Paul introduces a beautiful picture that Jesus has become the first fruits of those who have died. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's making an analogy that dates back to the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 10, we're given instructions there. The people of Israel were given instructions that before you could harvest your crop, you'd plant your barley harvest, and before you could harvest that crop, or you'd plant your wheat harvest, and before you could harvest that crop, you would cut down the first or sheaf, of your wheat or your barley and you would bring it to the priest and they would bring it and they would be waving it and they would wrap it up and they would give it to the priest as sort of a sacrifice and it was considered their first fruits but the idea was this is the first fruits of many of much more that was the idea in fact sometimes even in their planting of their harvest they would plant it not all at the same time they would um, plant it in um, over several weeks. And the reason why they would do that is in case um, the weather got bad at, at one particular week during harvest time, it wouldn't wipe out the whole crop. Because a couple weeks later, they'd have another crop that would be coming about. But whatever, when the crop was coming in, the very first, you know, part of the crop, you'd cut down that sheaf and you'd bring it to the, to the priest. And it was the giving of the first fruits. But again, the idea was this is the first of many. There's a lot more after this. And this is the idea in Paul's analogy of Jesus is the first of many who would rise again from the dead. He's the first. Now, so you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute. He wasn't the first to rise again. 
I mean, we read in the Old Testament, Elijah, he raised somebody from the dead, and Elijah, Elijah raised somebody from the dead. Jesus, you know, he brought back to life the widow of Nain's uh, son, and Lazarus, of course, he called him out of the grave after three days. But here's the thing, in all those people in the Bible who were raised from the dead, they all died again. So when this talks about Jesus being the first fruits, Jesus is the first to be raised who never died again. He rose again and ascended to the Father. He didn't ever die again. So you could say really, it might be more accurate to say of those other people in the Bible that were brought back to life, that they were resuscitated. And they eventually died again. Lazarus died again. The widow of Nain's son, he died again. The people that Elijah brought back to life and Elisha, they they died again. But Jesus was raised from the dead, never to die again. So he's the first of many who are going to follow suit, who are going to be raised never to die again, who are going to be taken into glory is the idea. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, that Again, idea of falling asleep is is sort of an idiom. And it's really a, a beautiful term because it's better than saying this. He's the first fruits of those who are rotting in the ground. You know, we, we talk about somebody dies and we say they, they were laid to rest. You know, somebody were to ask me, How's your dad? And hear that he, you know, passed in February. Oh, he's rotting in the ground. No, he's been laid to rest. He's in glory now. So this is just a nicer way of saying they were sleeping, they were waiting for resurrection. Now, we need to understand the Bible is very, very clear that when a Christian dies, that very moment that they die, when they breathe their last breath here on earth, they breathe their next breath in glory, in heaven. Because the Bible says to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 eight. Remember Paul was saying this in, uh, to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1 verse 23 saying, you know, I'm torn because part of me wants to stay with you guys because I know it would be better for you because, you know, the Lord will use me to encourage you. But part of me just wants to go home, go to, to die so I, that I can go be with Jesus because that will be better for me. And Paul says, I'm torn between the two. And so the believer goes immediately to be with Christ in glory, his spirit. That's who we really are. You know, the, the human beings are made up of spirit, soul, and body. And so it's our spirit, that's the real you. And the body is just a tent that houses the, the, the spirit, that's, that houses the real you. The body is just the means here on planet earth whereby God has made it where we can interact with one another. And, and, but you know, when, the, when this tent wears out and the heart stops ticking and you die, your spirit immediately goes to heaven. But the body, and this is, this is something that Paul's you know, talking about here, the body sleeps in the grave awaiting this resurrection, this final resurrection. Now, this isn't soul sleep. That's not even a a biblical concept. The soul or the spirit is in heaven. The body, though, is sleeping in the ground. It's, It's resting, it's dead. And the Redeemer, Jesus, is the first fruits of many who are going to rise. And this brings us to the second point of how this applies to us as the redeemed. And it's all about identification. Look at verse 21. He says, for, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. So here's what Paul's saying. Adam's sin affected all of us. When Adam sinned in the garden, it sent a wave into the entire human race from that point forward where all of us were born with a sin nature. We've talked about this before, how you don't have to teach your kids how to do bad things. They, it's, part, it's ingrained in them. It's a part of their sin nature. So we have to teach them how to be good. We have to teach them how to walk uprightly. They, they, they can get into trouble all on their own. Why? Because they have a sin nature just like you. We receive that from Adam. And a part of that sin nature that we received was also a death sentence. Because of sin, people died. 
And the statistics on death are very, very strong. 10 out of 10 die. So in Adam, we have, we all die. But in Jesus, we have life. We are connected to death through Adam, but we are connected to life and resurrection through Jesus. Every single one of us here were born into Adam as a human being. But if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you have been born again into Jesus. And sometimes people try to take this verse where it says, for in Adam, you know, we all die, and even so in Christ, all shall be made alive, to, to say, to use this as, as the idea of promoting what's called universalism, the idea that just everybody's going to get saved. But the key phrase in here is in Adam and in Christ. You are in Adam by being a human being, but you only become in Christ by putting your faith in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. And when you do that, you are brought into this resurrection life and everything that it stands for, um, for us who are followers of Christ. So if you are in Christ today, you have life, you have hope, and even when you die, you go to heaven, you receive in heaven a new body. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes. You know, where Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that in heaven, we're not these unembodied spirits. He says, we're not in heaven, we're, we're not naked. We're not just these spirits floating around. No, we, we are given in, in heaven a, a body there in heaven that is made for heaven, but it's not our final resurrected body. It's like a temporal covering. Notice what he says again in, in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, and even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. When he talks about his coming, this is when this all comes to fruition. The coming here is speaking of the rapture of the church. There's really three comings of Jesus. Now, I want to confuse you on this, but just hear me out, okay? His first coming is when he came to this earth as a baby, as a lamb to give his life a ransom for many. His second coming will be when he comes at, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes as the king on his white horse to set up his kingdom here on this earth. But in between his first and second coming is another coming where he comes, listen, here's the difference, not to the earth but to the clouds. And it's called the rapture where the trumpet's going to sound and those who are believers are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. In fact... Paul talks about this a little bit later on in the chapter. We'll, we'll look at it in a couple weeks, but, but look at verse 51. Just to kind of tie this together. He's speaking here of what happens at the rapture. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. What does sleep mean? Die. But we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. He says, look, we're not all going to die, but we will all be changed. And the word change there is the word metamorphosis. It's the same word that we use to describe what happens to the caterpillar when it climbs into the cocoon and comes out as a butterfly. That it comes out looking completely different. There's been this radical transformation that has happened. And this is what Paul is saying. That hey, our bodies at the rapture are going to be changed on the way up. That somehow in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in a blink, we're here on earth. And then we're with Jesus in the cloud. And we're going to be looking at one another going, wow, you look good. You know, there's going to be this sense of like, hey, there's a change that has happened. But it's not just us who are going to be changed, but those who are dead. Now, follow me here, okay? This gets a little bit tricky, a little complicated. Those who are dead are also going to experience a change. What is that going to look like? Look at verse 53. For this corruptible, 
must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And so when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? So the dead in Christ, they also are going to partake in the rapture of the church. And the rapture really becomes the turning point for the resurrection of the redeemed, both for those who are living and for those who are dead. In fact, this is the very thing that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the believers there were, were perplexed. They knew about the rapture, but they were wondering, hey, our loved ones who have already died, are they going to miss out on it? Are they going to miss out on the rapture? That was what they were concerned about. Those who have died, those who have fallen asleep, are they going to miss out on this? And this is what Paul said, verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 4, it should be on the screen. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And we're going to talk about these trumpet things in a couple of weeks. Just to make that clear, I don't have time to go into that all tonight. But then he says this, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So at the rapture of the church, those who have died are going to rise first. And we're going to meet them. There's going to be like a party in the sky. And Jesus is going to take us all to heaven. And they, here's the thing. Those who have died are going to in some way be joined with their heavenly body. We're transformed. We're caught up. Those who have died right now, they're in heaven, but they don't have their final resurrection body. That's going to be given to them at the rapture. Their change, the mortal putting on immortality, is going to happen at the rapture for them. And somehow, in some way, they're going to be connected with that part of them that has died. And our bodies are going to be transformed into these new spiritual bodies. So those who were dead in Christ are given their new, complete spiritual bodies. Now, some believe, some believe because there's no time in heaven. You know, in heaven, everything is in the now. There's no time in heaven. The Bible tells us that God is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He sees everything in the now, okay? So there are some who have suggested that because everything is in the now, the dead in Christ have already risen. That they're, they're, they've already experienced what Paul is talking about here. And at the rapture, we're just going to see it. That, that's a, a, an idea, but we really don't know. But the idea that Paul is pointing to here in 1 Corinthians, as well as in 1 Thessalonians, is that somehow, and, and no one really knows the answer. There's a lot of opinions, a lot of ideas, but somehow, and I, and I think God left it this way because, you know, even, even a, a biochemist, I think what God has planned is going to be so radical that even a biochemist today wouldn't even be able to understand how he's going to do this somehow. Where those who have died, that some part of them, we're not sure what part of them, is it going to be like Ezekiel 37 where the valley of dry bones that all of a sudden, you know, Ezekiel sees God putting flesh and bone, you know, back on them. And, or is, it, is he talking about their DNA? We don't know. There's a lot of opinions. We're just going to wait and see. But somehow, those who have died are going to be connected with their spiritual body at the rapture. And they're going to receive what we will receive, this total transformation that takes place as we are in heaven. Now, this brings up another question. Some people have asked, well, should my loved one get cremated then? Like, what if they were cremated? Well, listen, if they bury you in the grave, your flesh and, you know, begins to decompose right away. And after about 20 or 30 years, your bones decompose as well. So there's really no difference. 
you know? And it's not like God's going, oh no, they cremated him. What am I going to do, you know? Like, hey, he's bigger than that. He'll figure it out. And here's one of the things that I love. I just love this about the Bible. There's a lot of things in here that I don't fully understand. And that doesn't discourage me at all. It actually blesses me that my God is so big and so great that, that he's bigger than what my pea brain can understand. And so I love the fact that there are things that, that I look at and go, okay, God, I have no idea how you're going to do this, but you're telling us that this is what you're going to do, and I just can't wait to see it. Can't wait to see it when I get to heaven. So Paul tells us about the Redeemer, that Jesus, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first to die and never, or to rise again and never die again. He tells us here about the redeemed, that we're going to be raised to life in new bodies, a new home, that's going to be glorious, that we're going to be in heaven and in these new transformed bodies where there's going to be no pain and no fatigue and, and thank God, no weight gain. Especially with Thanksgiving coming up, right? No sense of like, oh man, should I have that second piece of pie? Absolutely, you know. Um, And it's not going to wear out. I'm getting ready to have sometime in 2021, early in 21, my hip replacement on my left hip. I had the right hip done. And uh, there's not going to be a need for that. No metal in heaven, you know? It's going to be awesome. It's just all these new bodies. Well, the next thing that he talks about here is the final restoration. Look at verse 24. Then comes the end. So, again, going back, just for context... Going back to verse 22, where he says, Christ is the first fruits, and after those who are Christ at his coming, at the rapture, and then there's this time gap. And after the rapture, we believe that there's going to be seven years of tribulation here on planet Earth, where God's going to be pouring out his wrath on a world that has rejected his son. And then at the end of that, Jesus comes back at his second coming. And he sets up a thousand years where he's going to rule and reign here on planet Earth. We come back with him. We get to be a part of all of that. And it says, then comes the end. And he's jumping now to the end of the millennium. Then comes the end when he, being Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. Book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, um, in his authority, all things have been put under him. He says, but we don't see it yet. We don't see all things put under his feet. We're going to see that at the, in the millennium. Jesus is going to rule and he's going to reign. And he's going to put all things under his feet. His enemies are going to be put under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is expected. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all and in all. So the rapture happens, seven years of tribulation, Jesus returns at his second coming, we come back with him, he begins to rule and reign for a thousand years, it's called the millennial reign of Christ, at the end of that, we we read that Satan's going to be let loose for a short time, and he's actually going to deceive many, now some people think, well why 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 would God do that, well listen, during the thousand year reign, Satan is bound and so even though there's going to be now, there's going to be a lot of babies born during that time, okay? A lot of people, a lot of babies born during that time. But without the devil, there's not going to be that element of, of the tempter, okay? And so what's going to happen is God's going to give opportunity for people at the end of that time who, you know, have just sort of been brought into this, you know, reign of Christ to kind of be like Adam and Eve and have a choice. And some of them are going to choose, They're going to believe the lie again and follow Satan. And then God takes Satan and all of his followers and throws them in, you know, to the lake of fire. 
And so after that is destroyed death and everything is turned over to the Father. And then it's what the Bible says. This is how the book of Revelation ends is there's a new heaven and a new earth. Well, what comes next? Have you thought about that? Like you read the end of the book, like, okay, new heaven, new earth. Then what? What's next? What, what like God leaves us hanging, right? And I think one of the reasons why, he, why we really don't know, even though we, I think we know it's going to be amazing, that God kind of keeps it as a surprise. He keeps us sort of in the dark because I think he knows it would blow our minds. Like we would blow a gasket. Like if we really knew what was coming and what was next and what he, what he had for us. So it sort of ends in that way. Where like, okay, new heaven and new earth, then what? You know, what happens? It's going to be a surprise, but it's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be too much for us to handle. But this is what I want you to catch from this. So many believers live in this realm where they, they think that heaven's the end. I, I love to do this. If the rapture happens today, like if we're gone. Before this Bible study ends, we're, we're in heaven. How long are we there? Good job. Seven years, Leilani said. Was that you? Okay. Star for you. <laughs> I've asked that question so many times, people go, forever. No, we're not going to be there forever. We're there for seven years, and then we come back. It's a thousand years. We have jobs. We have, we're part of Christ's reign. We have roles that we're going to play in the, in the kingdom of, of God. It's going to be amazing. And then after it's all done, it's a new heaven and a new earth. And I, well, what's after that? I don't know, but it's going to be incredible. It's going to be amazing. So heaven's going to be awesome. Paul said that he had a vision of heaven. It was so great that human words could not even describe. Like if I said it was awesome, that'd be like saying it was terrible. You know, it's like our human vocabulary can't describe what he saw. And what God has for us is going to be, it's going to be even greater than that. It's going to be amazing. But heaven's not the end all for us. So as we wrap this up, Paul is making a case for the logic and the necessity of the resurrection. And basically saying, look, if there's no resurrection, it would be meaningless to live as a Christian. There'd be no point in this. And he's going to give us four analogies. One that is from their culture, and then four that are his own personal testimony. The first one we have is this cultural example in verse 29. He says this, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, I got to tell you, this is one of the weirdest verses in all of the Bible. It really is. And there's a lot of skepticism about what this means. And it has been misused greatly by those who like to say that, that you can have sort of a proxy baptism. In fact, this is one of the things that the Mormons um, do. The idea that, hey, I'm going to be baptized uh, for my dead loved one so that they can be saved. Listen. There is nowhere in the Bible that supports that idea. The Bible is very, very clear that each person is responsible for their own faith. But apparently, there were those in Corinth, in the church of Corinth, who were believing this. And that's one of the things I just want to say about false teaching. A lot of times, you know, it's, it's not like some new thing. <laughs> Most of it dates back in some form to what was going on in New Testament times. And this is one of the things that was going on there in Corinth. And Paul is using a cultural example that his readers would clearly understand. That this was a practice that was happening in Corinth. And Paul is identifying it as a practice for the sake of an analogy. But that doesn't mean that he approved of it. Paul is basically say, saying this. This is his analogy. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then why are they getting baptized? Why are those people getting baptized for the dead? What's the point if the dead are not going to rise? That's his point. He's using this as an analogy that they would understand. So he's saying, look, just because, but here's what you need to understand. Just because he's using this analogy doesn't mean he's approving of the practice. It would be, be like me saying this, making a point that people, what people do, or people do things 
so that it has an effect on their lives. People are purposeful in what they do. You know, people go to the gym and they work out because they want to get in shape and they want to look better. There's a purpose, you know, in what they're doing. So if I were giving this analogy, say, look, people go to the gym in order to get in, in shape and people get, take drugs in order to get high. Now, by making that statement, I'm not advocating that I think people should take drugs and get high. I'm just using it as an analogy. That's what Paul is doing here in the statement. He's, he's making an analogy that in the Corinthian culture, people were getting baptized for the dead because they truly believed in, the, in an afterlife. They believed in a resurrection, even though this was an, an errant teaching, this being baptized for those who were dead, but they were hoping that they could affect the outcome of a loved one's eternal destiny. And Paul is saying, look, if they don't believe in a resurrection, why are they doing that? Why bother? What's the point? So that's the cultural analogy that would have made sense to his readers. It can be a little bit confusing to us. Um, because this was something that was a practice there. Then he gives three personal analogies that if there's not a resurrection, if Jesus is not risen, then verse 30 he says, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Paul endured a lot of turmoil for being a Christ follower. His life was always in jeopardy. He was always running the risk of somebody beating him up or trying to kill him. And so he's saying, look, if there's no resurrection, if what I'm preaching isn't real, what's the point? Why bother? And then in verse 31, and I affirm by boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, that I die daily. So what Paul's saying is, look, he lived a life of great sacrifice, daily dying to his flesh in order to serve Christ. And again, he's saying, if Christ isn't risen, if there's no resurrection, what's the point? Why am I doing this? And then he continues in verse 32, and if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? Again, he endured great persecution for following Jesus. He was, there was always opposition. And again, he's saying, look, if there's no resurrection, why, why do I do that? Why do I put myself you know, in, this, in harm's way constantly? But all of it was worth it to Paul. Paul said this, that it was the love of Christ that compelled him. And I think when he says that, later in 2 Corinthians, that he's not saying that it was his love for Jesus that compelled him and moved him, but it was his understanding of Jesus' love for him. And the more that he understood how much he was loved by Jesus, the more it just compelled him to serve Jesus more. That Paul was living because he had that, that sense of that living hope because of the resurrection. Paul was living for his eternal reward. That was his motivation. Now, Paul gets sarcastic here in the next verse. He says this, If the dead do not rise, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. He's like, look, if there's no resurrection, let's just go party. Let's go find a bar that's open and let's just go throw them down tonight and, you know, what's the point, all right? That's basically what he's saying. But then he says, basically, let's, but let's be realistic. Verse 33, do not be deceived. You know this, evil company corrupts good habits. You think, guys, don't be deceived. Come on, you know that those you hang out with, they are going to affect you. So, awake to righteousness and do not sin. Literally, do not practice sin. Don't live in sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God and I speak this to your shame. He's saying, look, some of you are living like there's no resurrection. You're living like, like you don't have a relationship with God. And here's the, as we kind of wrap up tonight, I want to just plant this thought in your mind. I think one of the best things that we can do as believers is to practice the presence of God. And what I mean by that is to realize that Jesus is with you all the time. In every conversation, He's with you as you're speeding down the freeway. He's with you as you're engaging online on social media. He's with you in all of those. So practice the presence of God. Practice the presence of Jesus. Start living your life like, hey, he's with me right now. And is he going to be happy with what I'm doing? Is he going to be happy with what I'm saying? Is he going to be happy with how I'm living? 
Am I reflecting him? So in wrapping this all up, the reality of the resurrection is our hope. It's the hope that we have that, hey, there's a day coming. If we die, we're in glory. And there's a day coming at the rapture where somehow in some way our, our body that is in the ground um, that, or that has been cremated or whatever is somehow going to be connected with our spiritual body at the rapture. And those of us who are alive um, on earth when that happens, we're going to be caught up and we're going to be meta, experience a metamorphosis, a transformation. We're going to meet together in the clouds and Jesus is going to take us all to heaven. And this is our hope. This is the living hope that we have. And the reality of the resurrection should affect the way that we live. I want to close with this verse in 1 John chapter 3. I love this. John writes, behold what manner of love, and that word behold means to look at this and be amazed. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be children of God. And therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. You find people that are just like confused with you in your faith. That's okay. It's because they don't know him. And they don't know who he is. Beloved, he says, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We don't, we don't know exactly what this is going to look like. But we know that when he is revealed, that we shall be like him, because we're going to see him as he is. It's going to all make sense. You know, the, 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 what, I, what I call God's end game for all of us is Romans 8, 29, that, where Paul says that his, he see, he's seeking to conform all of us into the image of Christ. That's what he's doing in all of our lives right now as we're living here on this earth. This part of this is our training ground. This is our transforming ground. And, but, but when we go to heaven, that's when it's going to be complete. And we're going to see Jesus, and we're going to be like him. And then John says this, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for this amazing truth. What your resurrection speaks to us of the hope that we have in Jesus of the power that we have to live for Christ. And God, I pray that we would be those who are living in such a way where we are practicing the presence of God. That we are living in such a way as to to realize that you are with us all the time and that we are here to represent you. And God, I pray that that we would do that well. That others around us would come to know you. Lord, we thank you for the power and the promise and the hope that is ours in the resurrection of Jesus. And we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.